We're in the Gospel of Matthew today. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 28. The end breaking of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it says this, starting in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And, And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? What do we mean when we pray in the model prayer, thy kingdom come? Well, there's two points of reference I want to draw your attention to. The first is from the shorter catechism, the Westminster Confession. It says this, in the second petition, when we pray thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced. So Satan's kingdom destroyed, the kingdom of grace advanced. Heisenberg Catechism. What do we mean when we pray your kingdom come? Answer. This is 1568. Written, okay. That you would rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. That you'd preserve and increase your church. That you would destroy the devil's work and every force that raises itself against your character and the authority of your word until Christ is our all in all. So, so your kingdom come, may Satan's kingdom be destroyed and the kingdom of grace advanced. So let so me two points about this because it says in the text, in chapter 9 again, verse 35, that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. So Two, two things about the kingdom. Number one, the kingdom of God is breaking in every day in our lives in small ways or big. In the everyday decisions of life and the way we love people, the way we care for people, the way we respond to the leadership of the Lord as we read the word, breaking into our lives in small ways and big. There's theologians talk about something called the law of undulation, which means that, that the, the, the kingdom of God, growth of the kingdom, are like waves in a sea. 
If you do read church history, you'll see this. There'll be times of great growth and expansion when the Holy Spirit just bursts on the scene and, and grows the church and matures people and, and the church grows rapidly. There have been periods of like that, like the Reformation in the 1600s, like the first great awakening in America in 1730 to 1740, the second great awakening in the early 1800s. But then there are times when the law, you seem to be on the downside of the wave. And it goes like that. So to understand that makes you, first of all, patient. It gives you expectation that God is at work and God is working. And it fills you with hope. So understand that your decisions, the way you're living is, is right now today, is making a difference. I was reading recently about the little country called Burundi. Burundi is in East Central Africa, right above Rwanda, 8,200,000 people, small country. But in the history of the church in Burundi, in East Africa in the late 1950s and early 1960s, there was something called the East African Revival. There was a great movement of God in East Africa, including Burundi. And as you read, it says that Burundi experienced growth and health and energy and, and, and Christ was central, the gospel was preached. But they said, but now, false teachers have come in, a moral laxity has come in. So, so two generations, a generation and a half after the East African revival, Burundi is once again in need of a strong movement of God in their midst to call them back to the gospel. And that, that happens in all cultures, all places. Um, that's why Galatians 6 talks about, it says this, it says, he says, but may we never grow weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So church, don't grow weary in well-doing wherever you are. Just continue to call out to God to bring his power in your life, to bring revival in our land. Um, right now we have a team of five people who are in Syria, excuse me, in Jordan, and they're, they're looking at the Syrian refugee camps, and we are trying to start some schools. We as a church just start some schools there where 30 to 50 students can come in, two or three schools, we hope, and they will be taught to write and do basic skills, and we can teach them about Christ. We can do that. But you go, you go to these places, did you know right now there are two to three million refugees in Jordan from Syria because of the Syrian war. And so you go to a refugee camp and we have 100, 200, 300,000 people all over the place and you go, really, what difference, really, do, do two schools that are educating 50 to 80 students, what difference will that make? Well, the issue is we're doing it as a step of faithfulness unto the Lord. We are faithful unto God and God uses that. So, so understand the kingdom of God is ongoing and it is advanced as, as we Respond to him with obedient faith. The second thing about the kingdom is this, is, is that Christ is the living God, not a legend. He reigns. There's a book by a guy named Philip Reth, Rife inside a sacred order and social order. It's a wonderful little book and he's not a believer, but he talks about first and second and third world sociological orders. And he says, first world order are, are, are cultures that are held together by, by the common myths they embrace. They, they embrace epic stories that give cohesion to their culture. He says, for example, the Norse legends in the Scandinavian countries or the Greco-Roman tales in, in Greece and Rome. Uh, they didn't really exist, but they pointed to a deeper reality or the Native Americans and some of their 
what they believe. Again, th- these things didn't really happen, but it's, it's a myth that gives cohesion. He said that's the first world. The second world are people who believe that there is a living God who has communicated truth to his people. That's us. A living God who really existed, who's communicated truth to his people. And, and so we say with great energy that, that Christ is God that he was real, that he had a physical body, that he died on a real cross, and he rose victorious over death with a real body. And he's in heaven right now praying for us with a real resurrection body. And that's why Romans 8 is such a glorious place to go just to meditate as, as, as Paul builds this superlative sandwich, just on and on and on. He says in Romans 8, he says, if, he says, if God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will not also along with him graciously give us all things. And then he says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God declares us righteous. Who's the one who condemns? He says, Jesus Christ. But he's the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. He says, can you fathom that? Not only did Christ die on the cross for our sins, not only did he receive his righteousness, but he is right now praying in heaven for his people. Wow. So, so behold the greatness and the glory and the majesty of Christ. Now let's go to the text. In breaking of the kingdom. Kingdom focus, kingdom conflict, and the compelling nature of the kingdom. First of all, kingdom focus. So you, you have these men who were born blind. And by, by the way, the only time blindness is ever Blindness restored, somebody's been, been born blind and they have sight restored. The only place that ever takes place in the Bible is in the Gospels. Only place. So these men born blind and Jesus, they're told, is passing by and they cry out, Son of David, have mercy upon us. Son of David is a term used 17 times in the New Testament. It is a term proclaiming the eternal divinity of Jesus Christ, that he's God, because in 2 Samuel, in the Old Testament, chapter 7, the Lord says to David, there will come a time when you, we will, you will always have a descendant sitting on the throne of Israel. And so the Old Testament Jew, the Inner Testament Jew, the New Testament Jew was looking for the coming of the one who would be the one who is greater than his father, David, who would be forever a ruler, forever a king. And they are ascribing unto this teacher that eternal calling as the son of David, and he was. Son of David, have mercy upon us. They follow Jesus. They grope or they follow him into a house. Christ looks at them and he says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. And he touched them and they could see. And then something happens in the story that I find to be very enigmatic or mysterious to me. Jesus says, it says, Jesus sternly warned them See that no one knows about it. But they went and spread his fame throughout the whole district. Jesus sternly warns them, not just warns them, but he sternly warns them. He says, don't, don't, don't talk about this. But they disregard him and spread his fame wherever they went. Now, my question is this. Why did Jesus sternly warn them? The text is silent, and there's different opinions. Let me give you my best shot. I think he sternly warned them 
because Christ did not want the glory of the coming passion on the cross to be sidelined. He did not want to be known primarily as a miracle worker, but as a suffering Savior who would die on the cross for the sin of his people. He he didn't want to cause a, a consternation over a miracle worker only, but to call attention to his focused attention of death upon the cross. Listen to, this is Mark chapter 8. Peter has just answered the question, who do men say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in another gospel account, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So that's the background. Very next paragraph. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get Behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What Christ is saying is, is, is Peter, when you try to impede me from going to the cross as the eternal God who would die on the cross for your sins, you are in league with the devil who wants to also stop that from happening. So get behind me, Satan. That the chief focus of the ministry of Christ was the glory of the cross. And he would not be sidelined from that. Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man, he says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the 72 were sent out two by two and they came back and they'd seen incredible things happen. Miraculous things happen. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 10. He says, I... I've given you authority to spread, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, I will not be deterred, don't let me deter you from preaching the glory and majesty of the cross. So, somebody were to say to me, How do we see the kingdom of Satan defeated and the kingdom of grace extended? My answer from the scripture is this. Preach the glory and majesty of Christ who was crucified for our sins. Preach the unfailing word of the cross. Sing it. Love it. Walk in the shadow of the cross. Behold the greatness of Christ. That's the focal point of the whole Bible. So, so we, we, we glory in it. We, we, we rejoice in it. John chapter 12. Christ says, I've read this several times in this, in this series of sermons. John 12 verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I say, How do we advance the kingdom? We talk about Christ. We talk about the cross. When Paul talks about the Christian in complete armor in Ephesians 6, he talks about the armor we put on. And, and, and every part involves the gospel. But, but listen, he says, may your feet be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So wherever you walk, wherever you go, wherever you move, you take the gospel of peace with you. 
He, he says, I'm put on the breastplate of righteousness. And they say, well, what, what is, it certainly isn't my righteousness. If, if I put on the breastplate of my righteousness, it is a paper mache. I can't do anything. It won't do me any good in battle. No, it's, it's the breastplate of the righteousness that Christ gives you that protects your life and your heart and your energies and your emotions. And he says, and take up the shield of faith by which you quench the fiery darts of the devil. How do we quench the fiery darts of the devil? We have faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We look to Christ. Church, look to Christ. And put on the helmet of what? Salvation. So, so how do we extend the kingdom of grace? You preach Christ. You love Christ. You glory in the gospel. You walk that way. We're doing a study, staff, called The Vine Project, and it defines a disciple as such. I think it's a great definition. A disciple is a forgiven sinner who is constantly learning Jesus in repentance and faith. A disciple, you always start with the fact that I am a forgiven sinner. I glory in the cross. I glory in what Christ has done. And as I glory in Christ, I want to learn from him because as Matthew says, his, 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 his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I, I learn from him in repentance and faith. But I always begin, always begin with a forgiven sinner. Who are you? You're forgiven. If you trust in Christ, you're a forgiven sinner. You're a forgiven sinner. I find the same pattern in, in Psalm 51 when David is praying this prayer of, 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 of repentance. And, and he's looking to the coming of the Lamb of God who will fulfill what the Yom Kippur Lamb did every year. David says in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. You just wipe them off. Just Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. So here's the pattern. You see, first of all, you say, God has hidden his face from my sin. He's blotted out my iniquities. They're gone. And as you do that, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit. And as you create a clean heart in me, may I not be cast away or may I not grieve your Holy Spirit and restore unto me the joy of your salvation. So he's, you see, his face is hidden from my sin because of the cross and, and he's created a new heart within me. And therefore I can say, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Do you have joy today because your sins are, are blotted out? See, part of the problem, this is just an aside. I, I, to, I told you that I, I read the Wall Street Journal. I enjoy reading the Wall Street Journal, especially the editorials and the weekend book section, international news. But, so above the fold this week, we live in a world where this horrible thing is happening in Zimbabwe and Mozambique. We have all these issues. But, but above the fold, I think it was, this was Tuesday, this was a headline. The brother of Bezos' lover sold text to tabloid for $200,000. Now, I don't, I don't keep up with that. I haven't, but I've read enough to know that there's this guy, Jeff Bezos, who's a billionaire several times over, uh, had a, left his wife and started, and took up with another woman who's, I've been with, she's, whatever. 
And uh, there are some compromising pictures taken that her brother found and sent to that paragon of journalistic integrity, the National Enquirer, uh, which will make July 4th dinner in their home a very interesting time. I read that and I thought, this is the Wall Street Journal. This is a very good newspaper, in my opinion. And yet their headlines are about something that, come on, come on. See, that, that, that's part of our problem. And, and, and so the, 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 you always ask yourself, how, how can I escape? How can I escape the enchantment of the world? How can I escape the enchantment of these things that just weigh you down and pull you? And just, and just, just, just here's, here's the answer. You stay near the cross. I think there's a statement made by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6. It's an amazing statement. He says this. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has crucified me and I to the world. He stops it well. Paul, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross through which the world has been crucified to me. How do you break the allurement of sin, the allurement of just being caught up in a web of nothingness? I think you glory in the cross. But Paul says, through which the world has crucified me and I into the world. Man, I want that. I want that. So the kingdom focus, the cross. Secondly, the kingdom in conflict. So right after this happens, uh, th this guy that comes in who's, who hasn't spoken in his whole life, he's mute. And it says uh, a, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And then there are two responses. The crowd marveled, and the disciple said, this is from the devil. Very interesting. So, so the, the, the mute man spoke. Uh, I look at this, and, and you read the Gospels, and, and when Jesus began his public ministry and he went to the desert to be tempted in Matthew 4, from that point forward, all hell broke loose. It's like the demons were, were emptied out, and, and they opposed everything that Christ did and every time he turned around. So, so the, 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 there is, there's conflict in your life right now because there is an evil force who wants to pull you down. And don't, don't forget that. So when the kingdom of God breaks in, Satan tries to take it away. Kingdom of God breaks in, Satan comes. The kingdom of God breaks in, Satan comes. There's some people right here who are, in, who are believers in Jesus, and you're in tremendous conflict. Because there's an evil force. The evil force is, is speaking, is pulling you down, leading you astray. It happens all the time. And that, that's to be expected. There is conflict in the kingdom of God. So when we're around people who are in conflict, who are hurting. Who's, what do we do? We befriend them and we love them. We open our homes to them. We embrace them. We, we care for them. And the responses are widely divergent. Response number one, the crowds marveled. They just marveled. They, they thought, wow, nothing. They said, nothing like this has ever been done in Israel before. This is wild. And they were right. Now, the, the marveling doesn't mean they were believing, but I think it means they were on the path to come and understand that they, they marveled. And I asked myself, am I, am I marveling? I ask you, are you marveling at who Christ is? What he's done in your life? And then there's another group, the Pharisees, who are really good guys. But they said, this work is of the devil. And, uh, which is amazing. We'll see in a couple of weeks where Jesus says, 
They've called the head of the household Beelzebub. What are they going to say about you guys? So you, you step back and say, these Pharisees who were committed to purity and committed to obedience and really committed to doing the right thing uh, as they saw fit, why did they say this was of the devil? I think here's the answer, in my opinion. Because everything about Christ destroyed the root of their system, which is this self-sufficiency. Everything about Christ destroys the root of self-sufficiency. And they, they, couldn't, they couldn't handle it. See, this is, this is part of the problem with people coming to Christ. There are people here today who aren't believers. And uh, you may be considering what it means to be a Christian. But this, is, but this is one of the greatest drawbacks in our culture. And especially the group of people that we would befriend. And it's this. Sheep. See, the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. And Isaiah. And the Lord has laid on him, the coming Messiah, the sin of us all. And Jesus says pointedly in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall go in and out and find pasture, but, but, but sheep. And you think about it, I asked some people this week, so give me some adjectives that describe sheep. And they would say, well, unfocused. They wander away, easily misled, defenseless. I said, man, you're describing me. Then I did some research. I didn't know this. I've never really been a sheep farmer. Do you know that if a sheep falls on its back, it cannot right itself? Just until somebody comes along, just turn them. So, so sheep can right themselves. See, it had been so much easier to preach to myself and others if, if Jesus had said, you're a lion, you're, you just need some direction, but you're the king of the jungle. Well, he didn't say that. He didn't say you're a pride of lions. He says you're a, a gaggle of sheep, a bunch of sheep. So we're in the middle of something called March Madness. It's a basketball tournament. And we think about some of the mascots. I always get uh, amused by the mascots. You have the Penn State Nittany Lions. You have the Columbia Lions. Nobody is named the Lambs. Now you have some different, some, just for fun, some, so you have some different mascots. You've got the University of California Santa Cruz Banana Slugs. Whittier College in California, the alma mater of Richard Nixon. Uh, it's a Quaker school. They're a they're, uh, their mascot is Johnny Poet, a guy with a Quaker hat writing poetry. I don't know. The North Carolina School of the Arts doesn't have an athletic team, but it doesn't keep them from being creative. They are the fighting pickles. And then the one you do know, because this team is often in the March Madness, the Wichita State what? Shockers. It's a, just a bundle of wheat with a smiley face on it. I mean, I, I, that doesn't really inspire fear or anything else in your heart, the shockers. But nobody's called the lambs. And yeah, that's what Jesus says of us. And then the compelling nature of the kingdom. He says, and it's the people like sheep without a shepherd. We need to see people like sheep without a shepherd. 
And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Um, pray the Lord will send out laborers into the harvest, into the subdivisions, into the college campuses, into the marketplace to talk about Christ. The compelling nature of the kingdom. Jesus talks about the good shepherd and he says, he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He says in verse 27 of John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. We follow the voice of the shepherd. Chapter 10, verse 7 says, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and he'll find pasture. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you hear the voice of the shepherd? Are you following that voice? And then he says in verse 16, this is strong. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. And listen, let his voice be heard in your voice. As, as, as we're in this Easter season, open your home and your hearts and just have people in and love them in the name of Christ. But let his voice be heard in your voice. He will bring people in. May God move us to have compassion on people. And one thing we need to continue to underscore, I'm reading a book that should be read by everybody. There's a guy named Arthur Brooks. It's entitled, Love Your Enemies. And the thesis of his book is that in our culture today, he says uh, that politically in the past, you could be angry with people and even lose your temper, but you didn't necessarily berate their character. He said in his understand after being a political observant person for almost 45 years, he says, today we've gone from anger to holding people in contempt. Just contempt. He says that, that one in six families in America have family members who don't speak to each other because of the 2016 election. It's ridiculous. But then he talks about a guy named Charles Murray who wrote a book that I called Coming Apart. It's a very good book. And really, it's a demographic study of uh, lower middle class America among Anglo men. And really, a follow-up book is an incredible biographical account by a guy named J.D. Vance entitled Hillbilly Elegy. And he says, Brooks says, even with strong economic growth, the United States has bifurcated into a nation of socioeconomic winners and losers. And this stratification is poisoning our culture. As the future fills with whiz-bang technologies, from artificial intelligence to driverless cars, one part of the population sees ingenuity, mobility, and progress. Another part hears, we don't need you anymore. There's a dignity gap. It talks about a study produced in 2015 by some Princeton professors and published in the Proceedings of the National Academic of Sciences. And they talk about, the, in contrast to the favorable long-term trends of life expectancy across most of the population, the mortality rate among middle-aged white Americans with no college education has actually uh, declined. And he gives these, these, these statistics blew my mind. I want to show them to you. He gives, they give three categories, and this is from 2017. So 2019 to 2000, excuse me, 15, regarding in this demographic group regarding cirrhosis of the liver, suicide, and drug overdose. 
In just a few years, cirrhosis of the liver has grown by over 50% in this group. Suicide, 78%. And drug overdose, 323%. The opioid crisis in America. And he says this, and I remember this well. He says, 1973 to 75, there was a desire to address the heroin epidemic in America. And then we had Reagan's war on drugs. But in that, in that, in that time of among 100,000 members of our population, there were 1.5 fatalities because of drugs. In 2017, among 100,000 people, there were 15 fatalities. In the United States last year, there were 72,000 people who died of drug overdose. Now, you read those, and if you went to a shelter and you saw people strung out on this, on this stuff, or you saw people who were down out there like, you would say they're, they're sheep without a shepherd, understandably. Here, here's, my, here's my point. My point is that you have neighbors who are making more money than you are, who went to better schools than you went to, whose kids seem to be doing better, and they're, they're on the precipice of suicide. You're going to go to work tomorrow, and you're going to work with people who you think are doing great, but they're like a sheep without a shepherd. You, you, you have friends that, 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 that have no concept of eternity, and they have no hope. I read an article in kind of a trendy magazine. It was entitled, The Most Disgusting, Weird, and Totally Inspiring Story You'll Ever Read About Weight Loss. And tells a story about a comedian that I asked some of the young guys, and they know him well. I don't know him, but he had, last year at the age of 48, he had, a, he had a massive heart attack. His cardiologist said, you have a 20% survival rate. You've got to change your, your lifestyle dramatically. He was very much overweight. He was a three-pack-a-day smoker. He ate all types of bad foods. And so in the last seven months, this is what happened. He's become a vegetarian. He's given up his cigarette smoking. He says, now, uh, instead, I, I drink, uh, excuse me, I smoke uh, marijuana. I don't, I don't know what the trade-off is there. But, uh, but he's, he's, he's lost 55 pounds. He walks his dog five days a week for an hour a day. And as I read that, and it was filled with cursings and mocking death, and I thought, you know, this guy eight months ago would look at him and say, man, he's a train wreck, just observable train wreck. He's smoking all the time. He's obviously overweight. He's, he's eating everything fried and deep fat. But now he's on Lipitor. Now he's, he looks pretty good. He's walking his dog. He's not, you know. He's still a sheep without a shepherd. You can look incredibly good. You're still a sheep without a shepherd. Yay Robinson wrote a poem entitled Richard Corey. It's a powerful poem. It says, Richard Corey was a gentleman from head to foot. And when he passed women, he would say good evening, and he made their pulses flutter. And he was a man, imperially crowned. And we labored on and we longed to take his place. We longed to be like Richard Corey. And one calm summer night, Richard Corey went home and put a bullet through his head. We're surrounded by people who are sheep without a shepherd. That may, that may be you. The gospel invites you to come in. May we, by the grace of God, see the kingdom break into our lives, our church. May the kingdom of Satan be emptied 
and may the kingdom of grace go forward. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today's opportunity of dedicating children, of singing hymns of faith, of being quiet to readjust, of sitting under the teaching of the Bible. And we pray that, Lord Christ, the kingdom would break in among us. We, we pray that the kingdom of Satan would be defeated and the kingdom of grace extended. We pray that we would more and more obey your word by the Holy Spirit and that we would see joy and laughter in our souls and purpose in our lives. So we commit our way to you, Lord. Please work in us and among us. Please show us your favor as we look to you and trust you. Show us how to love and open our homes and our lives to people that are like sheep without a shepherd, just to love them and to ask them questions and to walk with them. Thank you that people did that to us and for us. So blessed be your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.